When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. For the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the mountain, valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. You can read that passage for a long time and wonder what in the world we're talking about. But remember the context. In my understanding, the context is really looking forward to the blessings of the coming of Christ. I believe that chapter 14 is a passage talking about the Messianic age, the time that we're living in, the blessings that God gives us. So we're dealing with highly figurative, very vivid pictures, but I think they're pictures of the blessings we have in Christ. So, but, 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 but they, they show that in connection with that, there is a judgment of the unfaithful. So you see all the nations coming against Jerusalem to battle. And you see the devastation of those nations, you know, that, that they inflict. You've got the city captured, the houses plundered, the women violated, half of the city exiled. When God comes to bless his people, remember what John said about Jesus? He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's both the judgment and the blessing. Jesus comes and, and it divides men. It divided God's own people. There were the, the mass that rejected Jesus, that were punished. There were the remnant that turned to Jesus in faith that are blessed. So he brings all these nations against his people. And, and much of, many of his people are, are destroyed because they're unfaithful. And it really looks like it's hopeless for all of them. You know, it, it looks like that everybody's going to be destroyed or everyone is going to be condemned. But suddenly, the Lord goes forth to fight. When it looked like all hope was lost, the Lord comes down and stands on the Mount of Olives. And, uh, you know, the, the nations had Jerusalem surrounded. There was no way to escape. But when the Lord came down on the Mount of Olives, what happened with the mountain? It was split in two and divides, opens up a valley for the true people of God to escape and be blessed. Does that remind you of anything historically in the Bible? The Red Sea. You know, when the Egyptians were closing in and there was nowhere to, to flee, when it looked like the Egyptians were just going to overwhelm the Israelites and that was going to be that, suddenly the sea split open and they were able to cross on dry land. This is the, the counterpart of that. Suddenly the mountain splits open and they're able to go through the valley. I believe that this is what Jesus did to deliver us from sin. 
that it looked like that we were going to all be condemned. There was no hope, there was no salvation, there was no way to escape. And Jesus came and split the mountain open. And he gave us the way to escape from sin and be saved uh, through his blood. I think that's the idea. It's just a very graphic, physical way of describing that. You know, we're kind of ho-hum about those things sometimes. We hear the story of Jesus a lot. And so, yeah, Jesus came and died for us and all that. But if you thought about it as a battle, we were hopeless. The enemy had surrounded us. There was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to escape. If it had not been for the sacrifice of Christ, what would we have to look forward to? What, what would be our hope? You know, if, if, if Jesus had never died, we could only hope to just keep extending our earthly existence as long as possible. Because whenever we die, we'd be plunged to eternal destruction with no hope, banished from the Lord eternally. And there'd be no way, there's nothing we could do about it. The enemy's greater than we are. So Jesus coming and offering his, himself as a sacrifice split the mountain apart and gave us a way to escape. You know, if we saw it that way, I think it would give us a much greater sense of blessing and relief at what he's done. Thoughts and comments? Just as with the Red Sea, um, it, it seemed like there was no hope. I mean, it was unconquerable. And just when it seemed like our sin would overcome it, God did the unthinkable. And just as part of the Red Sea or part of the mountain, it's unthinkable. God did the unthinkable. Yes, He did. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And these passages, you know, there's probably a reason why rarely do we study Zechariah 14. But, but if we can see the, what this says, it's a great illustration. It's a great encouragement. You know, God will give us a way to escape if he has, has to come down and split the mountain apart. You know, God does wonderfully dramatic things to save us. By the way, I forgot to ask, what time am I supposed to stop this time? <laughs> 940. Okay. 940. Very good. Other thoughts? Six to nine. Six to eleven. <coughs> On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of that them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Reba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Again, quite an you know, unusual passage saying several things that cause you to scratch your head. I like to do two things in trying to understand what this is talking about. One is seeing that context we've been developing. The other thing is thinking about analogies in the Bible for these figures. So the first thing he says in verses 6 and 7 is, there's not going to be any, uh, any illumination, no sun, no moon, no stars, but it's going to be day. You know, there'll be light all the time. 
I go back to the passage like Isaiah 60. There's several of these passages. But the two verses I'm going to cite in Isaiah 60 are just uh, three verses before the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and so forth that Paul, that Jesus quoted before. So this is Messianic. He says in Isaiah 60 verse 19, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord at everla- for an everlasting light, your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting life, and the days of your mourning will be over. I think what we have in Christ is the light. He is the light. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the light of the world. What did John say? In him is light, and the darkness didn't overpower it. You know, Jesus is our light. We don't need the sun, we don't need the moon, we don't need the stars. We have the Lord. He shines upon us. I mean, you think about the Old Testament era versus the New Testament. You know, the Old Testament era was kind of like the twilight period. You know, it was being illumined by the kind of the, the glimpse of the rays that would come. But, but what we see in the New Testament is the fullness of, of, God, of Jesus as, as the sun, S-U-N, that shines upon us. We have constant light in the Lord. Or look at verse 8. You have the living waters flowing out of Jerusalem. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, in, in, the, in the land of Canaan, it was not common, other than like for the Jordan or something, to have continuous flowing rivers. They would have rivers in the spring with the snow melt and the rainy season. Late summer and fall, they dried up. Or that's kind of a bummer because that's when you need the water. <laughs> And they're dried up then. Do you know what they called those rivers that would dry up in the summer and fall? You know what the word is? Wadis. Yeah. W-A-D-I. Wadis. That's just a word for that kind of a phenomenon. But he's saying here, there's going to be constant water. It's not going to dry up. Now, think again about what are other passages that talk about a continuous flow of water? Can you... John 4, exactly. What did Jesus say he was? Basically like a what? Constant well of water. You know, he said, you, you know, I am, I'm basically the water. And, and you don't need to come to this well. I'm the living water. The living water is like the constant supply. You're just always provided with, with that water. Um, in in uh, John chapter 7, you've got a similar figure as well. I think we may have cited this the other day, if I remember. But he says, all, um, John 7, 37, not 6. Uh, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You know, Jesus is the constant water source. Then look at verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. The Lord is the king over all the earth. You remember what Jesus said after he was raised? Matthew 28, 18. What did he say? Exactly. The king over all, the only one. He has all authority, the Lord exalted. Look at verse 10. The land will be changed into a plain, 
and Jerusalem will rise. Now think about it. If you, if you tear down all the stuff around Jerusalem, and then you raise up Jerusalem, that's like raising it up twice. You lower the stuff around it, and then you raise it up. Now what does that remind you of in the Old Testament? Exactly. At, at the top of the mountains. Isaiah 2, Malachi, Micah 4, where God's mountain is raised up above the other mountains. In the rest of Isaiah 2, it talks about how all the high things around it are lowered down. The oaks and the towers and the walls and the ships and all kinds of things like that. And, uh, the, and he says, the Lord alone is exalted in that day. Now the picture in Isaiah 2, you see all these, uh, you see the mountain of God's house raised up above the mountains, and, and you see all the nations flowing up to the mountain. That, that, that's a contradiction of the law of gravity. Uh, things flow down. But Jesus has like a magnetic, magnetic attraction. You know, the, the nations flow up to the mountain, up to the exalted Savior. You can see that in Acts 2. Think about Acts 2. Peter preached that the mountain was raised up, that Jesus had been made by God, both Lord and Christ, and you see already people from all different places flowing up to the mountain, 3,000 baptized that day. So I think that's the idea. Here, the God will be exalted. And then verse 11 People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse. Wonder what curse he has in mind. Sin. And the separation from God that was caused by sin. In the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And everybody's been dying since then by sin. But Jesus reconciles. He takes away the sin barrier. So I see these figures in 6 through 11 that at first look like, wow, that's amazing. Well, they are. But they're amazingly the blessings we have in Christ. Imagine Zechariah writing this. Imagine the Jews reading this and thinking, oh, wow. That'll be wonderful when there's constant light. That'll be wonderful when there's a constant flow of water. Oh, wow, it'll be great when the Lord's king over everything. Can't imagine what it'll be like when Jerusalem's raised up and everything else is lowered down. When there's no more curse, when we dwell in security. It's us. We have these blessings. We need to treasure more and appreciate more the wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. We have so much more than, than we realize. Because we, we've kind of taken these things for granted. You know, we're looking at the blessings in Christ as something we've always known about. So it's just like, well, yeah, that's what's good. You know, kind of like, what, that's what God's supposed to do. You know, that's just God. You know, he just did that for us. That's nice. No, think about it from the standpoint of people who did not receive those blessings. The, hearing the promises and longing for the day when that would be true. If we can think about what we have in Christ that way, it will make us appreciate so much more the blessings that we have. And if we can see these vivid pictures, highly figurative, but they're memorable. Once you see these pictures and you understand this is what we have in Christ, it just makes us uh, be much more grateful to the Lord for what he's given us. Thoughts and comments on all this? 
Yes, my John chapter 10, when Jesus talked about uh, having some other sheep that were not as the fold, and bring them in to meet the Lord be one flock and one shepherd. So ultimately, God is the supreme ruler, as Zechariah says, over all the earth, and all people will be his to submit to his will. Amen. Great passage. Yeah. Other thoughts? To me, this is the best approach to Zechariah 14. You know, probably, I mean, I suspect if you were to ask, uh, you know, brethren, Zechariah 14 probably be on the uh, list of top five chapters that are obscure in the Bible. But, but looking at it in context and thinking about these analogies, I think helps us to stay on the, at least generally, right track. And it's pretty cool what you see. Um, how about 12 to 15? This shall be the plague with which the, the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will not will rot in their sides, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight against will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of the surrounding nations shall collect gold silver and garments in abundance. <clears throat> and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Alright, so here is God's punishment against the enemies of his people. The Lord strikes the peoples who've gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh rots, the eye that they have used to try to look for weaknesses among God's people rots. The tongue that they've used to speak against God and his people rots. And there's this panic, and they start fighting each other. How many passages are there in the Old Testament where wicked people fight against each other? Can you think of some of them? Gideon with the Midianites. You know, they were really aggressive. They were out to kill somebody, and they did. But it was each other. You know, they just kind of self-destructed. As far as we can see, the majority of them were killed without any interference from Gideon or his men. Can you think of other cases? Where evil just kind of turned against itself and self-destructed. Second Chronicles 20. Yes, Second Chronicles 20 with that coalition of uh, nations that came against Jehoshaphat. God told Jehoshaphat, just go out to battle to celebrate the victory. You know, just, just wait for me to save you. So they go out to battle with musical instruments, not with <laughs> weapons. And sure enough, by the time they got there, the enemy is self-destructive. Great passage. What else? What about, uh, you wouldn't think of this one this way, but what about uh, Judges 9? The way Abimelech and Shechem just you know, double-crossed each other and ended up, you know, Shechem was destroyed by Abimelech and Abimelech by that woman who rolled the millstone out of the tower. Um, and, and there's lots of passages like that. Ultimately, God makes evil self-destruct. There's one sense in which Satan's kingdom is divided against itself and does not stand, ultimately. And uh, so God destroys the wicked. The, the enemies of God's people are brought down. And you think about today, what has Jesus done? 
Well, he whipped Satan and Satan's forces. He defeated them severely. And, you know, it had to have been aggravating. Because when Satan entered Judas's heart to sell Jesus, what was Satan trying to do? Was he trying to uh, provide atonement for man's sins? No, he wanted to wipe out Jesus. He wanted to frustrate God's program. There's one thing you know, Satan's not omniscient. You know, and he rarely seemed to figure out where God was going. Now, Satan's pretty sharp in a lot of ways, and he sure is good at tempting. But he ended up destroying himself. You know, he shot himself in the foot. Because he inspired the crucifixion that rescued souls out of its control. So Jesus is winning the victory. He won the ultimate victory, and now he continues defeating Satan and his forces. What a great encouragement to us. It seems overwhelming to fight against Satan and his armies. But it's not because of what Jesus has done. He's given us the victory. If we stand in the Lord's strength, we can fight the principalities and the powers and so forth from Ephesians chapter 6. So it's very encouraging to see the Lord's dominion over his enemies. Thoughts and comments? 16 to 19. That it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Jews. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. The family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Okay, um, so those that are left in all the nations that went to destroy Jerusalem end up being converted and go every year to worship the king and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now that's an amazing thing about the Lord. He fights his enemies or converts them. I mean, you know, does the Lord hate the world or love the world? And hates the world. It depends. You know, I, I think that's a challenge for us to think about. Certainly, the Lord wants all men to be saved. Those who refuse to repent and be saved, then he wills to punish. And uh, Isaiah 27 is a really remarkable passage. Let me just use this for an analogy to this. Isaiah 27 really goes back to Isaiah 5, but I'm not going to go into all that. But Isaiah 27 too. In that day a vineyard of wine singeth, I the Lord am its keeper, I watered every moment, so that no one will damage it, I guard it not nine days. Vineyard is his people, and he's taking good care of his people. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. So you see the idea of the zeal of the Lord for his vineyard. And I just dared somebody to bring a briar or thorn in there. He'll step on them, he'll trample them, he'll, he'll incinerate them. You know, it kind of reminds you of like a, a maybe a, 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 a new husband. 
He'll almost like for somebody to mess with his wife so he can dap her, so he can just prove how much he loves her and how much he's willing to protect her, defend her. You know, guys say, man, just, just bring a brighter thorn. I will wipe him out. But then look at the next verse. Or, let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. That's incredible. After he just says, you know, I dare a briar or a thorn to come in. And it's like, I'll wipe them out. Or, if they'll turn, I'll reconcile them and I'll save them too. You know, when the Lord is offering a peace treaty to the briars and the thorns, you see his incredible grace. He either destroys his enemies or he prefers to convert them. That's what you see here. The, the nations that have gone up to war that are spared are converted and go up to worship and celebrate the Feast of Booth. That brings me to something else. One of the things that's a challenge for us in understanding the prophets is that when they describe the future, like the time of the Messiah, they use terminology and refer to things from the past. Now they do it so much, I don't think this can be denied. But it's hard for us. Let me give you a few illustrations. Ezekiel will say that in the Messianic age, David will be their king. Well, of course the radical pre-millennialists say God's going to resurrect David and he's going to become king in the millennium. But almost everybody else realizes he's talking about Jesus. But but what if what if what if Ezekiel said, and God's going to bring Jesus and he's going to be their king? Well, that doesn't mean anything. You know, who's Jesus? But if he says David, they understand the idea that another David will come. Remember what he said about John the Baptist in the Old Testament? Who did he call him? Elijah. And again, there's a few people. You know, who argue that, that Elijah is going to be raised up and so forth. But Jesus said twice that the Elijah was John the Baptist. Why didn't, uh, you know, passages like Malachi uh, 4 say that John the Baptist was coming to prepare the way for Jesus? Well, if you think about it from the standpoint of Malachi's audience, what would that have meant? John the what? You know, who's that? But another Elijah coming makes sense. You can relate to that. So you've got passages like in Jeremiah where there's not going to be a Levitical priest. Uh, there's not going to be a lack of Levitical priest to offer sacrifices in the Messianic period. In other words, Jesus is going to be the constant sacrifice. You just got that all the time. So when he talks about the Feast of Booths here, what did he just say? And these nations will celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. <laughs> The Lord's what? You know, what's that talking about? So he describes their faithfulness to God in terms that make sense of what the people understand. We just got to live with that. You know, I think there are times when we like, man, I wish he hadn't written that that way. Well, he read it, wrote it the right way. And we don't think so. We just miss, you know, the, uh, the way the Lord likes to do things. But, but he's, when he says go up annually to celebrate the Feast of Booths, he's just saying be faithful to the Lord in whatever the Lord requires. Now, the ones who don't, no rain. God punishes, brings a drought. Thoughts and comments through verse 19. There's some uh, peculiarities about the Feast of Booths that we see in the, the Lord's Supper. 
Well, I, I'm not even really arguing specifically that he's saying the Lord's Supper itself, uh, but just that's the kind of thing that he could have said that would have been like startling. I, I think the Feast of Booths was in many ways the, the, the high point feast for them. We would often think the Passover, the Passover was too, but, but in many ways the Feast of Booths was more central. It was the climactic feast in their seventh month, which was their feast or special day month. And it was more of a joyful feast. It's when they read the law every seven years. So I think the Feast of Booths is just a good choice for describing them worshiping God. I look at these last two verses, 20 and 21. And that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Now that's interesting. This picture of the messianic time is a time when everything's holy to God. Even the bells of the horses are holy. Every cooking pot in the whole place is holy. Normally, the holy stuff is the stuff in the temple. The stuff that's specially dedicated to God. But in Christ, what about our lives is specially dedicated to God? Everything. There is not one secular thing in our life. Everything belongs to God. God dwells in us. We are a holy temple to Him. So, all of our life needs to be consecrated to God. We have this idea, we've got our religious life, we've got our professional life, we've got our family life, we've got our recreational life, we've got our educational life. No. God dominates all of life. You remember how, like in Colossians 3, Paul talks about how slaves ought to serve their masters as to the Lord? <laughs> Can you imagine God, you, you know, how you serve your master is a matter of holiness? It's a matter of your relationship with God. That, that he would bring the Lord into even the slave-master relationship. It, it, in Christ, it's total commitment, total consecration. There's no more distinction between the holy and the unclean, or the, the sacred and the secular. In Christ, our whole life is devoted to the service of God. We're never off duty. There's not, there's not an hour that's ours and an hour that's God's. Every hour is God's. And so that's a radical teaching of Zechariah to say... In that day, in the Messiah, everything from the bells on the horses to the last cooking pot in Judah is dedicated to God. It's total commitment. We give our lives to God, not just a few hours a week, not just the time we're in the church building. You know, you think about it. Can I say this quickly? I think I can. Um, I, I had a guy studying with for a while that was talking about is really had a problem with sexual purity. Really bad. About as bad as I've ever seen. He was talking about one day, he was in church. He was a Christian of sorts. And uh, he was in church service between God and God's worship. And he was so addicted, so much in the habit of doing this, he, he forgot where he was. He started looking at his cell phone on the internet for things. Between God and worship. It just like, ooh, it scared him. He actually took the battery out of his cell phone and gave it to one of the deacons to, to hold for him to keep him doing that. And you can see that. Can you imagine doing that? <laughs> Wouldn't that horrify you? But, but then again, you stop and think about it. 
God dwells in my body. I mean, I wouldn't want to do that in the church building. Why would I want to do that in my body at any time? If God dwells there, my whole life should be His. He's present in every part of my life. The same shock and recoil I ought to get for doing something like that between Bible study and worship really ought to be anytime, anywhere, because God's always with me. So that's the idea, the total commitment to God. Well, that's uh, what I can understand about Zechariah. I'm sure there's a lot more in here that I haven't understood. There may be some things I've got wrong. But, but just keep studying, keep reading. Don't shy away from a book like Zechariah because it's difficult. Because there's wonderful truths in this. God wants us to understand them. Just challenge ourselves to keep studying and learning. Thank you so much for your attention and your involvement.